Thank you so much. You may be seated. We thank God for his wonderful work as a great physician in Doug's life. And we recognize we all have heart problems, don't we? And uh, we're grateful for the heavenly cardiologist we have. A great physician. And our hearts need his touch this morning. So let's look at the passage we read earlier, Luke chapter 23. A passage that shows us the heart of Jesus as few passages in all the Word of God. This is such a powerful passage, and we ask God to open our hearts to it today. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you at 5 o'clock today, we do have a special service of share and prayer for the Ukraine. I hope that you'll come. This is a service, of course, for us as a church family, also our community. It'll be held in the hub, and we'll be able to share uh, more information. Yes, information you do not uh, receive uh, on our media, but information of how God is at work and how also we can be praying to Him on behalf of our brothers and sisters, and also our opportunity to share and remind you that up until the 31st of this month, we are receiving a special offering for relief and ministry uh, to the uh, Ukrainian refugees, uh, nearly three million or more now, scattered across several countries. We are blessed to have partners in those areas and we want to be able to be a part that way. So encourage you to give as you leave today in one of the boxes or if give online, come tonight. Prepare to do that as well. But I encourage you to be here at 5 o'clock. And again, it'll be over in the hub. One of the most intriguing characters in the Middle Ages is a man who is known as Richard I of England. You may have heard of him more often as Richard the Lionhearted. Richard the Lionhearted. Amazing life, a short life, only 42 years. He lived from 1157 until 1199. Amazing life. It's the stuff of legends and there's all kinds of legends about Richard the Lionhearted. But many of the stories are not legends, they're true. And one in particular, a story, a true story about Richard the Lionhearted, I'd like to share with you as we begin. In 1192, Richard was returning from England after the Third Crusade, as it was called. He was one of the kings of Europe involved in a crusade in the Middle East. And as he was returning to England, and that was unique because in all of his reign as king of England, he only spent about six months there. He spent most of his time in the Duchy of Aquitaine, which is actually in France, a region in France. That was the home area of his mother, who's famous herself, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Uh, 
Some of you may know her more as Katherine Hepburn <laughs> in, <laughs> in a movie, A Lion in Winter. Okay. She is an amazing woman. But on the way back to England, Richard's ship in a terrible storm went aground in Italy. And he was on enemy territory. And so he and some of his companions started a, a journey, and he was trying to travel in, in disguise to travel all the way across Europe to get at least to France where he'd be safe. But he was discovered en route. He was captured by the Duke of Austria, who was a vassal to the arch enemy of Richard the Lionhearted, who this arch enemy was King Henry VI, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He was taken to King Henry, who placed him in chains and demanded a ransom for him. That England would pay a ransom for their king, and the ransom would be 150,000 German marks, or in British sterling at that time, 100,000 pounds. Now, to make sure you understand this, 100,000 pounds in that day was equal to three years of the total income of England. Well, never underestimate the power of a mom, okay? Because Eleanor of Equitaine went to work with her other sons, taxing, literally, the living and the dead, all right? If you're wondering where that came from. Uh, taxing everyone and was able to raise 100,000 pounds British sterling to set free Richard the Lionheart. The largest ransom ever paid. And from that comes the little phrase we hear sometimes, a king's ransom. That'll cost you a king's ransom. It's rooted in that ransom of three years of the wealth of England paid to ransom the king. at The largest ransom ever paid. But not really. You see, the largest ransom ever paid is not the ransom for a king. The largest ransom ever paid is the ransom paid by a king. Amen. By a king. The king of the Jews. The king of heaven. The Lord Jesus. King of kings and Lord of lords paid the greatest ransom Ever. And what is so amazing, my friends, is for whom he paid that ransom. The king paid the ransom. But who did he pay the ransom for? And friend, to know the answer to that and know the right answer and know it personally is everlasting life. This morning I want us to look here at this passage and I want us to think about a ransom, a king's ransom. 
and we're going to do it quickly under three headings. These three headings, let me give them to you. First of all, in these 25 verses, there's a wretched plot. There is a wicked person. And there is a wonderful picture. That's what opens up this entire section of Scripture. A wretched plot, a wicked person, but in it all there's a wonderful picture. Now, quickly, notice here the wretched plot. And wretched is too kind of a word to use for what is happening that night to Jesus. Wretched. So quickly, we're just going to walk through these darkest of hours. And then we're going to focus on the light that shines in this darkness. Now notice verses 1 to 3. It's a continuation of the illegal arrest and first trial of Jesus, which leads to further illegal captivity of him and now even a more illegal mock trial, if you could imagine such a thing. Verse 1. Then the whole company of them. Who's the them? It's the members of the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the Jewish people, before whom Jesus has just been condemned as a blasphemer because they said, Are you the Son of God? And he said, I am. Then the whole company of them arose, and they brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They knew exactly, didn't they, how to get Pilate's attention. He says he's king, and he tells everybody not to pay their taxes. Big liars. He did say he was a king. He never told anybody not to pay tribute. Verse 3, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. The same thing he said before the Supreme Court of his own people. Now he's before the court of the Roman occupiers. And he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king? And his answer is, you have said. It literally is this. What you have said is true. The Bible tells us that before Pilate, the Lord Jesus witnessed a true confession. And this is it. He said, I am the king. Pilate sees through everything. <laughs> I mean, you never lie to a liar. <laughs> they, he sees what's going on here. He's a schemer. He knows a scheme when he sees it. And so he evaluates the whole thing. And he says in verse 4, And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no fault in this man. And they respond again by lying and crying out and lying, saying that he's an insurrectionist. He's, he's leading and telling people to rebel against your authority, governor. Verse 5, 
But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and from Galilee, even to this place. And Pilate hears one word. What's the word? Galilee. Ah, here's an opportunity for me to wash my hands of this man. He tries to wash his hands of him before he ever really later on washes his hands. Verse 6, Pilate heard this. He asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So thinking he can escape this, he can sidestep. Pilate sends him to the authority in Galilee, which is King Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, meaning one-fourth of the area, the Tetrarch. Part of his kingdom is Galilee. He sends him to Herod. Herod is a wicked, weak, self-indulgent man. And what does he want? When Jesus is brought to him, all he wants is a show. Oh, I've been wanting to see you for a long time. I've been hoping that I might see a miracle, perform a miracle for me. And it's very interesting. Jesus speaks before the Sanhedrin, he answers. He speaks before Pilate, he answers. But he will not speak to Herod. His silence is deafening. He will not speak to this monstrous, murderous charlatan. This is the man who killed his cousin, John the Baptist. This is a man in who a few years is going to kill one of his closest disciples, James. He's wearing royal robes, but he's no king. And so this scoundrel, Herod, comes up with the idea... To mock Jesus by putting royal robes on him. Priceless clothing. Puts it on him and there stands the true king of the Jews before the one who's called king of the Jews. And he stands there. Can you see Jesus? His silence is deafening. He stands there. As a king, with dignity before debauchery and innocence before evil. What's the Bible says? He is led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53. And so... Herod sends him back to Pilate wearing the king of the Jews' robes. Verse 11, notice this. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So he goes back wearing... The garments of the king. Standing before Pilate. He's dressed like a king now. 
He just doesn't have a scepter and a crown, but the fiendish Roman soldiers will take care of that before very long. They'll have a rod to give him after they beat him nearly to death with it. They'll have a crown for him after they make a crown out of those horrendous thorns. So he'll have the garments of the king of the Jews and he will have a befitting crown and scepter. The second time he's brought before Pilate for another judgment. Verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers. He calls them back into his judgment hall. And he said to them, you've brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. Hint, hint, you liars. Not guilty of your charges. Neither did Herod. Herod sent him back to me. He has done nothing deserving death. I therefore will punish him and release him. Again, the second time Pilate says, I'll punish him and release him. He's not guilty. Here's the Jewish leader's response. Verse 20. Pilate dressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. This was the Roman torture of death. Not the Jewish. Crucify this man. Crucify him. This is his own people. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. A third time, third time, Pilate renders a verdict. It's one thing to have one verdict from a governor. Here's three in one night. The third time he says, What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Three times he's not guilty. Three times a not guilty verdict. But finally, we read from the other Gospels, they determine how to corner Pilate. He's already been in hot water with Caesar because he's been too heavy-handed and not too long ago he has butchered some people in the temple. And so they get a great idea. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Boom. That sealed it for Pilate. Because he knew what that would mean. Condemnation before Caesar and banishment to some deserted place. Which is what happened to Pilate a few years later anyway. And so, even though he has declared Jesus three times not guilty, he passes sentence. Verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He knows this is an innocent man. 
He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Now, okay, we'll crucify him. But now notice, he said he would hand over the man that they had been asking for. The man, do you see that? So let's notice this wicked person because we've looked at this wretched plot. But all the attention starts to come to this wicked person. This wicked, wicked person is who? He's introduced to us and we're told his name that he is Barabbas. He is Barabbas. He is an insurrectionist and he's a murderer. This has happened recently. This means that he's murdered people who are friends of Rome or maybe some Roman soldiers and he's done it as a true insurrectionist. So this man is genuinely an insurrectionist who's being released. And Jesus was accused of being an insurrectionist. And he'll be condemned. Now think of this wicked person, Barabbas. Let's focus here. He's one of the baddest of the bad. Now, don't think of this as you know, Robin Hood kind of character. Matthew says he is a notorious, a notorious prisoner, which means literally he's a marked man. He's a marked man. It means he is famous for his criminal activity. It, today, his face would be in the post offices. Today, he would be on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Today, his story would be on TV shows and social media. Today, the public would be warned about this man, that he's to be considered armed and dangerous. Barnabas, Barabbas is a man without redeeming qualities. He's bad to the bone. Today, he would be called a, a criminal sociopath. No redeeming qualities, without remorse for his murders and his robberies and his insurrection. But his trail of crime and carnage has come to an end. We don't know how, but he was captured. And he was convicted and he was incarcerated in the dungeon of the Antonia Castle. Right outside the temple. He's on death row. The Roman soldiers have had him in the dungeon. And they have taken great joy and sadistic pleasure in letting him know what awaits him. No doubt they've already tortured him by beating. But they've gotten their great pleasure out of telling him What's going to happen? Describing perhaps a crucifixion to him and what he's going to experience. They look, look forward. These Roman soldiers have been looking forward for a long time to nailing this one up. 
And Barabbas hates them. He hates them with every ounce of his being. He curses at them, no doubt. Spits at them if he has an opportunity. He grinds his teeth in rage at them. He's hateful and he's hated. But in the darkness of his dungeon cell, guess what? Barabbas knows, and I'm sure the guards have told him, buddy, this is the day. This is the day. Did you hear that rooster? We heard it. No, you maybe you didn't hear it down here. We heard it. It's the day, Barabbas. You will be crucified. We're going to nail you to a cross. We're going to watch for the next two or three days. You die in agony. And he sits in that filthy hole of his dungeon. And you can imagine his emotion. Hatred. Rage. And terror. Waiting and waiting. To hear that key in the lock. To hear that cell door open. And to see the leering faces of his executioner saying, it's time. You see, Barabbas doesn't know. Down in that dungeon, he doesn't know. He doesn't know that way up above, his name is being chanted by hundreds of people. Barabbas, 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 give us Barabbas. Release Barabbas. Set free Barabbas. This brings us to the heart of where I want us to focus here at the close. He's a wicked person. He deserves his judgment. He's earned it. He's without redeeming quality. But now an angry mob is calling for his release. And this is where we see the wonderful picture. You see, there's a reason Luke tells us about Barabbas. There's a reason we're told the kind of person he was. It's part of an incredible picture here. There is a picture here in this horrible scene. Can you imagine a more wretched scene of injustice than this? And yet, in the midst of this injustice and cowardice and brutality and mob rule and what is going to be the crime of the ages, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, the crime of the ages is going to be an incredible wonderful glorious reality of salvation. And this man, Barabbas, reminds us of three, three great truths, three gems of truth I want us to close with here. They, Barabbas tells us some things about salvation. What, what does Barabbas tell us in this picture? What does he tell us about salvation? You see... Barabbas is the personification of a sinner. Think about it. 
Barabbas is the personification of a sinner before the Lord. Not a sinner before court here on earth, but a sinner before the Lord. Think about it. Barabbas, Barabbas is captured. Barabbas is guilty. Barabbas is condemned. What is the case of every person, every person who has not yet been saved by the grace of God? All of us as sinners have been captured. We're the slaves of sin. We're guilty. All have sinned and come short of God's standard. And we're condemned. The wages of sin is spiritual, eternal death. That's what Barabbas represents. He's the personification of a guilty sinner before a holy God. Captured, guilty, condemned. And friends, all of us in this room and all watching have at some time been on death row. And sadly, some are still there. On death row. But this is where the story, the story of this personification of evil, because of the personification of God's grace, Jesus, it brings this gleam into the gloom, all of our gloom as sinners. Barabbas is on death row, he is a sinner. But why did Jesus come? Jesus came to save sinners. <laughs> he did not come to save good people. He came to save sinners. And that's who he still saves. There's only one kind of people that Jesus saves. He doesn't save good people. He saves sinners. And the story of Barabbas tells us that message of Christ died for sinners. <laughs> that's, that's the people Christ died for. For whom did Jesus die? He did not give his life for good people. He gave his life for sinners. It tells us whom Jesus saves. Who does Jesus save? Sinners. You're here today, you're watching, you're listening. You sense that you're a sinner before God. Here's your hope. That's who Jesus comes to save. It's the people who say, well, I go to church. I give money. I'm not as bad as others. I Listen, you know, put my life in the balance. Sure, I've done some bad, lots of it. But the good outweighs. There's no hope for those folks. If that's how you think it's going to be when you stand before God, my friend, listen, I beg you to understand, your case is hopeless. That's not who Jesus saves. He saves sinners. The Bible says this is the faithful saying it's worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners <laughs> Paul said of whom I am chief I'm the foremost see Barabbas tells us whom Jesus saves he saves sinners 
And Barabbas also tells us how Jesus saves. How does Jesus save people? How are sinners saved? They are saved by Jesus' substitution. He takes their place. That's how Jesus saves. He saves sinners the same way that Barabbas' life was saved. Jesus took his place. That was not Jesus' cross he was carrying that day. It was Barabbas' cross. They had not made that cross for Jesus of Nazareth. They had made it carefully for Barabbas. Jesus took the cross of Barabbas. He saved Barabbas literally by substitution. Think about it. Jesus took Barabbas' beating. He took Barabbas' torture. He took Barabbas' cross. He took Barabbas' spikes. He took Barabbas' death. He took his place. Substitution. My friend, that's the, that's the gospel. To me, Peter gives us perhaps the greatest definition of what this means. The substitution of Christ. Peter said that Christ Jesus died. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. That's what Jesus did. He took the place of sinners. Taking their death. Their judgment. Deserved from God. So that by taking their place, he might bring them to God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He became our substitute. The story of Barabbas tells us whom Jesus saves. He saves sinners. It tells us how Jesus saves. He saves by substitution. And then it tells us what happens when Jesus saves someone. What happens? Well, the same thing happens to a sinner spiritually that happened to Barabbas physically. What happens when Jesus saves someone's soul. Number one, four great transformations. Here they are. One, two, three, four. Number one, released. Barabbas was released. He was released from his captivity. He set him free. Secondly, he was pardoned. It wasn't that he had not committed murder. He had. It wasn't that he had not Committed insurrection? He had. He had robbed. Yes, he had. He was guilty, but he is pardoned. He receives a pardon. Number three, the person whom Jesus saves is released from the bondage of sin. Pardoned from the guilt of their sin. Number three, redeemed by the price Being paid for sin. Redeemed. Purchased. What's the word redeemed mean? It means purchased. Price has to be paid. Listen, my friend. God Almighty cannot just say forget about your sins. God Almighty cannot be just and holy and say your sins don't matter. They do. 
Your crimes must be punished. My crimes must be punished. And the gospel is they have been punished. In Jesus who paid it all. He's redeemed us from the curse. And to redeem us, he had to pay the price. What's the price? That price is a ransom. You see, Barabbas was released because he was pardoned. He was pardoned because he had been redeemed. And he was redeemed because payment in full had been paid by his replacement, Jesus Christ. He's ransomed. He's set free. Have you ever wonder about Barabbas? I've wondered about him a lot. I started thinking about him as a boy, and then I saw a movie called Barabbas. Anthony Quinn was Barabbas. He was as good as Barabbas as Catherine Hepburn was at Eleanor of Equity. And it's a, it's a great story, but we don't know what happened to Barabbas. But here's my question about Barabbas. Listen carefully. I wonder if he ever experienced his name. Barabbas is how we pronounce it. He would have been called Barabbas. Barabbas. Which means son of the father. Son of the father. Barabbas' name means son of the father. Who took his place? The son of the father. Who is, who's Barabbas? He, he's just like the first Adam. He has sinned. He's ruined his life. He's ruined everything. He's a guilty sinner. And God promised Adam and Eve, both who were sinners, that he would send a redeemer. And who is that redeemer would come? That redeemer is the second Adam, the second man. And who is he? He's the son of the father, Jesus Christ. As a Christian, if you're a Christian today, your hope is in Christ. You've been, your faith is in Christ. You've experienced it. Think about it. Think about it. You were a child of the father who had gone astray, turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord laid on him, who's him? The Son of the Father, the iniquity of us all. He took our place. Why? So that we can become Barabbas. We can become sons and daughters of God. This, do you see this story? It is amazing. That in the midst of this darkness and night and wretched evil, that down to the very names, God is working out His miracle of salvation. 
by delivering up his own son. And the son takes his place in the place of the criminal so that those who are sinners might become Barabbas, sons and daughters of God. I don't understand what I'm telling you. <laughs> but I'm rejoicing in it. How about you? Amen. By faith. By faith alone. Not because you've earned it. But because you believe that someone has taken your place who's worthy to take your place. Jesus. You can step out of that dungeon. You can step out of the darkness. You can step out of the night. You can step into the light. You can be born again. And not just barely saved, but become, because of the Son of the Father, by your faith in Him, you become a son or daughter of the Father. Released, pardoned, redeemed, ransomed. This week, in prepping for this message, I came across the story of a man I'd never heard about, early church witness. We don't know much about him, but he wrote a letter to someone called Diognetus. Diognetus. And his, this epistle was first discovered back in the 13th century, but recognized and now traced all the way back to maybe the 2nd century. And he is writing to Diognetus, who is someone who's interested in Christianity, interested in how Christians worship. And this man who we don't know, or woman who we don't know, who simply calls himself or herself disciple writes to this man, Diognetus, and says this, as talks about the gospel, here's what is written about Jesus. Think about it. This goes back 1,900 years. Listen to a brother or sister in Christ speak across the centuries. Quote, He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his son as a ransom for us, the Holy One for our transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one, was it possible that we, wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wicked of many should be hid in a single righteous one and that the righteousness of the one should justify many transgressors. Wow. I meet that brother or sister. 
a loud amen. You know when salvation will come to your soul? When by faith, you can look to Jesus and say, I am Barabbas. And that is the moment you'll become, by faith, a son or daughter of God. I am Barabbas. And I need you, son of the Most High God. Let's bow our heads. Our heads are bowed. Dear friends, thank you for your attention this morning as we praise God for the testimony we heard from Doug. But, oh, friend, listen carefully, please. Have you ever come to the Lord as a Barabbas? Have you ever come to him saying, I'm Barabbas, I'm guilty, I'm condemned, I deserve anything coming to me, I've failed but I believe the Son of the Father has taken my place. All my heart, I look to the Barabbas, the Son of the Father, as my Savior. Oh, friend, today, today, this moment, wherever you are, say to the Lord God, say to His Son, I and Barabbas. You took my place. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Set me free. Bring me out of this dungeon. Bring me out of this darkness. Break these chains. I am Barabbas. And you are the gracious, loving Son of the Most High who came to save sinners and I am the chief oh friend if you will truly from your heart turn that way to Jesus oh friend I want to say to you welcome to the family welcome believe on the Lord Jesus Christ you will be saved for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved out of repentance and brokenness Don't try to say what you'll do to do better. No, no, no. Don't do that. Look to what Jesus has done. Don't bring before God your deeds. They are filthy rags. Bring before God the judge. The life and death. Resurrection. Of Jesus. And you. Will be accepted. Now Father. I pray in the name of Jesus, once again, vindicate your son's death. Vindicate your son's agony. Vindicate his perfect submission. Vindicate his atoning sinless sacrifice. Bring more Barabbas out of darkness into your family. Bring them now. 
Lord Jesus, Son of the Father, bring sons and daughters home. Oh, just one, righteous one, bring unrighteous ones to God today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.